Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Open your Bibles to John chapter 4 as we are continuing. John chapter 4 as we are continuing through the gospel of John together. I don't know if you know of a man named Peter Popoff. Peter Popoff is a late night televangelist who sells miracle spring water from Russia that is supposed to get rid of all of your diseases. He claims that if you buy one of his bottles of spring water and put it next to your bed, by sheer osmosis, you will get out of debt and have all of your miracles come true. Now, he's probably one of the most outlandish of the televangelists, but I don't know if you know his story. Back in the 1980s, he was very, very popular. He had a huge ministry. And he had this unnatural or supernatural, uncanny ability to be able to know exactly what everybody in the audience was going through. It was supposedly direct revelation from God. Well, what they found out was, and this was exposed on the Johnny Carson Tonight Show in 1986, if you remember back in those days, two magicians illusionists, professional illusionists, were watching Peter Popoff and they thought there's something not quite right with what's going on. So they did an investigation. They planted people in the audience. They used surveillance equipment. And sure enough, here's what they found out with Peter Popoff. His wife was feeding him information through a wire radio receiver into his ear and that's how he was able to get all this information. And it was shown to be a scam. And so basically in 1986, when this was exposed on the Johnny Carson show, his ministry was over. In 1992, you may remember Steve Martin starred in a movie called Leap of Faith, which was based upon Peter Popoff's deceptions. Now, unfortunately, he made a comeback in 1998. And to this day, he is still on television selling his miracle water, getting direct revelations from God, and telling you that your financial miracle will come through if you just give money to his ministry. And I sit, watch this and say, how gullible do people have to be? And do people not read history? You see, in American culture, there's always been this fascination with the sensational. The sensational. Whether it be the Psychic Friends Network or whether it be some late night televangelist, there are people that are desperate for miracles. They're desperate for their financial breakthrough. They're desperate to get out of debt. They, they're, they're desperate so they will believe anything and they will view religious people as those who are commodities to be able to give them their goods and services like a cosmic vending machine or as a traveling magician. And the question I've got for you, is this anything new? Is this anything new? Was it around in Jesus' own day? 
Were there people that were treating Jesus as this traveling magician that would give them their heart's desire, that would be the cosmic vending machine that would give them whatever they wanted? Yes, it does happen in our text this morning. We pick up at the end of John chapter 4. Jesus had spent two days in the village with the Samaritans after he had the encounter with the woman at the well. And then he comes back to Cana. Now you remember Cana of Galilee was where Jesus performed his first public miracle, turning the water into wine. And as he comes back to Cana, what are the people expecting from Jesus? Another supernatural miracle. And so here's the question for us this morning, and it's, it's fairly simple, but I think it's, a, it's an important question to ask. Here's the question. What is genuine faith in Christ? Genuine faith. What exactly is genuine, authentic faith in Christ? And so I think as we look at this passage of Scripture, we will find out what faith is not and what faith is. So let's read together, starting in verse 43. John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. This is right after he had spent two days there with the Samaritans, with the woman at the well and her testimony. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that's one o'clock, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Here's the story. We have an official whose son is very sick. Now, we don't know who this official is, whether he is a military officer or whether he is a tax collector. He's probably working for King Herod, who is actually a local governor. We don't know if he's, if he's a Gentile, probably, most scholars believe. And so he's this unnamed official. But the issue is his son is very, very sick. Three times in this text, we are told that his son is sick. In verse 46, he was ill. In verse 47, he was at the point of death. In verse 49, if if Jesus doesn't come, my son is going to die. This is a serious issue. His son is very, very sick. 
Now, from Cana, where they are, to Capernaum, back where the child is, it's 14 miles downhill. That's why the man kept saying, Jesus, will you come down? It's a downhill trip. It takes about a day's journey to travel that. So it would have taken Jesus about a day to get from Cana to Capernaum by foot. And any parent that's had a sick child can empathize with this father. I mean, this is dire. This is urgent. He is desperate. His son is on his deathbed, and all he knows is this Jesus can heal him. I remember when Zachary was younger, our special needs son, and one of the hard things about Zachary before he got a G-tube was that he would get sick a lot, and he could not communicate to us why he was sick. He would just scream and yell, and we would have no idea what was going on, and we would take him to doctor after doctor, and and sometimes he would have a blockage in his bowels, and other times he he may have just had an infection, and, and there were times where he had to be in the the the, um, the the hospital room for up to three to four days on IVs uh, just because he couldn't take things orally. So we understand what it's like to have a sick kid, and some of you have had sick kids. But this kid is on his deathbed. So this this dad is 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 nervous. It's it's urgent. It's dire. It's it's a legitimate need that his son gets healed. And at face value, that's the story. Jesus heals a sick son. Is that all that's going on in this passage of Scripture? Is it just a simple healing? Jesus simply heals a man's son who's sick. There's more going on because look at verse 54. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. A sign. Nothing is put in the Scripture by accident. This story is here on purpose. What does this story tell us about faith? Is it simply Jesus heals a a royal official's son who was on his deathbed? Yes, at face value, that's the story. But what more is going on? I want to show you a spiritual parallel to what's going on in this story in the book of Ephesians. So if you would be so kind as to keep your finger or you can swipe back with your electronic device, however you do that. Let's turn or swipe or enter, I don't care how you get there, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Because I want to lay for you a case this morning of a spiritual condition that is something that every single one of us in this world deals with. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is a graphic description of every single person without Christ. He's talking to the Ephesians and says, this is who you used to be. You were dead in sin. You were enslaved to Satan. You were enslaved to your flesh. You were enslaved to this world. You were a child of wrath. The situation was dire. It was hopeless. You were spiritually dead. Just like the boy in our story who was on his deathbed, spiritually, every single person is born dead spiritually. 
So what has to happen to overcome the spiritual deadness that every single person is born with? Can you overcome that yourself? Can you somehow get yourself out of spiritual depravity? The answer is no. God has to do something. And that's what we continue to see in Ephesians. Look at verses 4 through 9. Look at the most amazing thing that God does. But God. Verse 4. Circle that. But God. It's one of the greatest words in the Bible, but God. What did God do? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did God do? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God takes you from spiritual death to spiritual life. By grace, you've been saved. But Paul says that grace comes through faith. It's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. There's this transformation that happens to every single one of us who's a Christian. We've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. God has made us alive. God has caused us to be raised to new life. And that happens, and Paul says, by faith. So the question we've got to ask again, okay, what kind of faith is that? What is the saving faith that transforms us from spiritual death to spiritual life. What kind of faith is Paul talking about? What kind of faith is Jesus talking about? What does it look like? What is genuine faith in Christ? Well, let's go back to our story in John, and let's see what genuine faith in Christ, first of all, is not. It's, it's always helpful to find out what something is not before we find out what something is. So here's the first thing we see in this passage of Scripture. Here's what genuine faith is not. You use Jesus for what you can get out of Jesus. That's not genuine faith. You use Jesus for what you can get out of Jesus. Now I want to show this to you in our text. Look at verse 45. When he came to Galilee... The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, at first glance, this looks good, right? The Galileans welcomed Jesus. But why did they welcome Jesus? Why did they receive Jesus? What were they looking for in Jesus? Well, John tells us there, they had seen what he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. What had they seen before? They had seen Jesus perform miracles. And so what they're expecting from Jesus is, hey, here he comes again. He's going to give me my miracle. He's going to be the traveling magician that's going to give me what I want. Here comes the cosmic vending machine. Let's welcome him. He's going to give us what we want. Now, let's go back to John chapter 2 because John chapter 2 has already addressed this. Who are these people? We've already seen these people. We're seeing them again. Let's go back to John chapter 2 for a moment. 
Verses 23 through 25, we have already seen these people. You may not remember it, but we've already seen these people. John says these people were back in Jerusalem at the feast. They had seen what Jesus had done. And now they're showing up again. Who are these people? John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. What does Jesus say about these people? Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Sounds great, right? Many people are believing in Jesus. They're seeing his miracles. But look at verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. They may have, quote-unquote, believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. He saw right through their faith and said, Listen, the only reason you're coming to me, the only reason you're welcoming me, is because you want to use me to get a miracle. You see me as your magician, You see me as your traveling miracle worker. And then Jesus, back in our text in in chapter 4, verse 48, he's going to address the situation head on. What does he say in verse 48? So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now the guy's asking him to heal his son, and he says, hey, you guys, you plural, unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. What's Jesus saying? The only reason you want me to to show up and heal is so that you can get signs and wonders. And the only type of faith that you're showing is a faith in what you can get out of me as your magician, as your religious um, cosmic vending machine. In other words, they were welcoming Jesus only because they wanted to use Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Do you truly love Jesus simply for who he is? Or do you love Jesus and use Jesus for what he gives? Do you want Jesus simply for who he is? Or do you use Jesus for what he gives? Many people will quote-unquote welcome Jesus if it's on their own terms. I like Jesus. I want Jesus. I'll believe in Jesus, but it's got to be on my own terms. I want to use him to give me what I want. Whether it's a miracle, whether it's a financial breakthrough, whether it's some other thing, but it's got to be on my terms. And I really, I don't really, really want Jesus as much as I want what Jesus can give me as long as he starts meeting my needs, as long as he makes me feel better, as long as I have these, these goods and services that only Jesus can provide as this traveling magician, I'm good with that. It's a faith that uses Jesus. That's not genuine faith. And there's a lot of people that use Jesus. Unlike the psalmist who said this in Psalm 73, 25 through 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. John Piper has written a good book called God is the Gospel. And I've been captivated by the opening paragraphs of that book, the opening chapter. Here's what John Piper said. If you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all the friends you ever had on earth, 
and all the foods you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauty you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? I'm afraid a lot of people in America would say, give me heaven and all the benefits of heaven. And oh yeah, if Jesus is there, that's cool, but that's not the main thing for me. I just want all the stuff he can give me. That's what this crowd was doing. It wasn't like Paul who said in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So what genuine faith is not is a faith that uses Jesus to get out of Jesus what you want him to give to you. Sadly, many people treat Jesus that way. Cosmic genie, divine bellhop, vending machine, whatever you want to, whatever thing you want to say about that. So what is genuine faith then? What does genuine faith in Christ look like? Well, I want to show you three features of genuine faith from this passage of Scripture. Three features of what does it really mean to have faith in Christ? Here's number one, first of all. Genuine faith in Christ trusts in the power of Christ. This is a beautiful story. Because Jesus has the power to heal the boy from a distance. Did you notice that? Does Jesus travel the 14 miles down to Capernaum and lay hands on the boy? No, he doesn't. He heals him from a distance because Jesus has power to bring this almost dead boy back to life. Now, I wonder in your life, do you honestly truly believe That Jesus has the power to take you from spiritual death to spiritual life. Does he have that power? Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. You see, here's what true saving faith is. True saving faith means you come to that point in your life where you realize you are powerless, you are helpless, you are dead in sin, you are under God's wrath, you are separated from God, you can do nothing in and of yourselves to save you, to cleanse you, to forgive you, to take away the guilt. You're helpless. The only thing you can trust in is the power of Christ to save you. Jonathan Edwards used some vivid imagery to capture the the, the theological truths of the Bible. And one of the imageries that he uses is this. When he was, he was talking about our righteousness, not getting us to heaven, he was talking about our sin. He said it was like this. It was like a spider web trying to stop a falling boulder. You picture that in your mind? What's a, what's a spider web? Is a spider web going to hold up a boulder? No. We are powerless. Our, our, our filthy rags of sin are like this little spider web. And there's no way we can hold up a boulder in our own strength, in our own power, in our own flesh. We are powerless. 
But true, saving, authentic faith believes in the power of Christ to save. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the word of cross is folly, foolishness, it's moronic to those who are perishing. But to us, the cross, to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Do you believe in the power of God to raise you from spiritual death to spiritual life? Saving faith. Here's the second feature of authentic, genuine, saving faith. Secondly, genuine faith trusts in the word of Christ. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and went on his way. Now does Jesus again, does he travel down to Capernaum 14 miles as he lay hands on the boy? How does he heal the boy? With his words. Go, your son will live. That's it, Jesus? Like no earthquake? No, no laying on of hands? No showing up with the crusade, with the miracle crusade? No, my word's enough. Now what does the man do? Does the man sit there and say, Jesus, I need more proof. You're gonna, Jesus, I'm from Missouri. You're going to have to show me. I'm from the show me state here. You're going to have to show me some proof. Show me the money, Jesus. You've got to show it to me. What does the man do? What does it say there? Verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. That was enough. Jesus spoke it. Jesus said it. His word is sufficient. His word is powerful. I'm believing it. I'm going back home to my son. Because Jesus said, he will be saved. You see, he understood that Jesus' word is as good as Jesus' presence. And Jesus did not have to physically be there to heal his son. His word was enough. Romans 10, 17 says this. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How are you saved? How do you come to faith? By hearing the word of Christ. Even when we don't see. Faith is is trust in what we cannot see. He couldn't see Jesus physically healing the son. All he had to believe was just the word of Christ. It's like what Hebrews 11.1 1 says. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Do you trust in the power of Christ? Do you trust in the word of Christ? Here's the third feature of genuine faith. Genuine faith trusts in the grace of Christ. Think about what's going on here. Was Jesus obligated to save this boy? Was Jesus, can anybody force Jesus to do anything? Now, he was a royal official. He may have been able to think he could pull some strings and get Jesus to do this and and maybe say, listen, if you don't heal my son, there's going to be some repercussions. God cannot be manipulated. God cannot be forced Everything that God does is his sovereign prerogative to do so. And so think about this. The only reason Jesus healed the boy is because he wanted to heal the boy. And it was an act of sheer grace and mercy to this desperate father. Because that's the way Jesus is. He's not obligated to show us grace, but he shows us grace in spite of the fact that he's not obligated to show us grace. You see, there's nothing good within us that moves God to love us. 
There's nothing good within us or there's no merit within us. There's, there's really nothing in us that makes God look down and say, you know what, they're so worthy of salvation. Man, God looks down upon your life and he's like, man, you've really got it made. You, you're doing all these awesome things. You're, you never tell lies. You never have bad attitudes. You, these people are perfect down here. And you're thinking, what universe are you living in? No, we're all sinners. And God shows us grace because he has the right to show us grace. Romans 9, 15 through 16. Paul quotes Exodus and says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Why are any of us saved? Not because we deserve it. Not because God was obligated to give it. Not because we forced God's hand. All of us are saved because it's God's sovereign right to save who he wants to save. And it's God's sovereign right to show mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. And praise the Lord he does because if he did not do that, none of us would be saved. He has sovereign right to show mercy because he's God. Now, those are the three things that you see immediately. The power of Christ, the word of Christ, the grace of Christ. But I want to show you something a little bit further as I was looking at this passage of scripture. It just kind of stuck out at me. Let me ask you a question. How many of you became a Christian? How many of you repented and believed the very first time you heard the gospel? Or did it come in stages? Here's what I see in this passage of Scripture. Sometimes trust in Christ comes in stages. Now, what do you see in verse 50? We just looked at it. Jesus said to him, go, your son will leave, will live. The man believed the word of Jesus and spoke to him and went on his way. He believed, right? Okay, so he goes down, his servants meet him, his son's recovering. The man says, well, what time, what time did, you, did you see as the son recovering? That was about one o'clock. And he's like, oh, wow, that's awesome. One o'clock. That was, let me look back. That was the exact same time Jesus told me that he would be healed. Now, what do we see in verse 50? The man believed. Look at verse 53. The father knew that the, that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all of his household. Which one was it? When did he believe? He believed twice in this passage of Scripture. You see, Jesus' word was performative. It performed what he wanted it to perform at just the right time. It's like what Isaiah 55, 11 says. So shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose it and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So he believes in verse 50, and then he believes again in verse 53. Now, sometimes this happens, doesn't it? You hear the gospel for the very first time, and you're like, that's weird. That's strange. Hear the gospel a second time. That's really weird. Hear the gospel a third time. Okay, that's starting to make some sense. You hear the gospel the fourth time. Ooh, I'm starting to feel a little conviction here. You hear the gospel the fifth time. Wow, Jesus is really becoming real to me. Fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth time. Finally, after about 11 times, somewhere along the way, God births faith in your heart and you repent and believe. I would say probably very few of you in this room if the very first time you heard it, you came to faith. It may have come in stages. And you know what? That could be true for you this morning. Maybe you've been coming to Emmanuel for maybe a few weeks now. And you're just here checking us out. And you're not really sure what you believe. 
And you're not really sure if you buy all of this Christianity stuff. And let me just tell you, I am so glad you're here. I would much rather you be here and have questions and learn and be in a, in a safe place where people can love you and answer your questions than for you not to be here. And so welcome to Emmanuel Baptist Church if you aren't a believer yet. This is the best place you can be because it could be that next week it makes more sense or after the service somebody talks to you at lunch and it begins to make more sense and it comes in stages and then after a sudden you realize that after maybe a few weeks you're believing, you're repenting, you're not there yet but God may be close to opening your heart to the truth. It's almost like the guy that was healed in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. It's another story in Mark's gospel. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit in his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Whoa, I can kind of see. So does that mean Jesus didn't do a good enough job the first time? Jesus must not have spit hard enough. The mud must not have been the right compound. So Jesus, does Jesus have to do it again because somehow he failed the first time? No, let's look. Verse 24, I mean verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his, hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. This is the only time in the Gospels where there's a two-stage miracle. And I don't think it's because Jesus failed the first time. It wasn't like Jesus couldn't, I couldn't heal him the first time. I better try again because the first, I don't think that's what's going on. I think it's a living parable of sometimes what happens in faith. Sometimes when you encounter Christ, you can see, but it's a little fuzzy. And then in stages and over time, it becomes more clear. And that could be what's happening to many of you as you're coming to Emmanuel Baptist Church, as you're hearing the gospel. It hasn't quite clicked fully yet, but you're really close. So keep coming and keep being under the preaching of the word and keep listening to the gospel because God may be very, very close to making it all click. Now, we get to the end of chapter 4. And structurally, chapters 2 through 4 are what we call the Cana cycle in the Gospel of John. Starts in Cana. It ends in Cana. This is the first literary or structural unit of thought that John gives in this gospel. And I know it's been a while, but there are five significant events that have happened in this first cycle. What's the first thing we saw? Jesus turned the water into wine. The new joy and abundance of the new covenant. What's the second thing Jesus did? Jesus cleansed the temple. New wine, new temple. Jesus met Nicodemus and said, you must experience the new birth. You must be born again. New wine, new temple, new birth. The fourth thing we saw a few weeks ago, he gave the woman living water, new water, new expansion of the gospel to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles. So we've got new wine, we've got new temple, we've got new birth, we've got new expansion to the Gentiles. And what do we see in this story? New life to a son that was about to die. You see the theme that John's trying to point home to us? Newness. Jesus has come to bring newness of life. Jesus has come to make you new. He's come to transform that dead heart. 
He's come to give you new living waters. He's come to be the new temple to give you direct access to the Father. He's come to, be, to put new wine into your heart to give you the joy and abundance of the new covenant. He's come to give you new life. He's come to give you new birth. He's come to make you new. And only Jesus can do that. You see, the world can't give you this newness. Yourself can't give you this newness. You can't find this newness by being a good person or trying to go to church or or some type of spiritualism. You can't produce this newness. You know, another word for newness is simply salvation. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you want to be made new? Are you sick of your old self of sin? Are you guilty under the weight of your old patterns of sin? Are you under deep conviction this morning that your heart needs to be made new in Christ? Are you here this morning and you're desperate to be made right with God? You want to be made new. If you want to be made new, do what the man in this passage of Scripture did and what we've seen all along. If you want to be made new, believe in Jesus. Authentically place all of your trust in Christ. Surrender your life to Christ. Give your life to Christ. Bow your life to Christ. Trust in his power. Trust in his word. Trust in his grace. And here's what you will find. Here's what you will find, I guarantee it. If you come to faith in Christ this morning, you will find a perfect, all-sufficient, powerful Savior who has accomplished the work on the cross, and he alone has the power to make you new, to cleanse you from the inside out, to forgive you, and to make you accepted before God. Do you want that this morning? Do you want to be made new? If you want to be made new, then come to Jesus. He will make you new. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father in heaven, I'm thankful that you make us new through Christ. New hearts. New life. Father, you take us from spiritual deadness to new life. Just like this boy was on his deathbed and you raised him to life simply by the power of your word. God, you can do that today to those that are dead. I believe it. Father, I believe that there are those who are dead in sin today that can be made alive in Christ, and that's through faith alone in Christ. So, Father, would many here that need to go from death to life, would many here today believe in Jesus? A true belief. Not not a using type of faith, but, Lord, a true surrendering faith that trusts in you alone to save, to cleanse, to to overcome 
our sin. Thank you for the newness that you bring to our hearts. Thank you that we are new creations in Christ. Thank you that the old is gone, the new has come. Lord, we want to be new. We want to walk in that newness of life, in the joy, in the overflow, in the abundance of that living water, in the abundance of that new wine, in the abundance of that new birth, in the abundance of that new life. Jesus, you've come to give that to us, and we are so thankful for that that you've done. Would you help us walk out of this place with joy? And would we walk in the freedom of what it means to be new in Christ? Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your word. We love you. We trust you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.